Welcome everybody back to the Root and Edified show. I'm your host, Caddy Elias, and you are joining us for a special, special episode with a special, special man, my husband, Manny Elias. Happy dance for you. Salsa dance. Happy salsa dance. Exactly. The title of this episode is How Sensational, an Intro to the End Times. Also known as Eschatology. This show is brought to you by Beautifully Rooted, which is a Christian mental health and education corporation. It's also sponsored by Beautifully Rooted. And this show, The Rooted and Edified Show, is a fun-loving, no-facade, conservative Christian worldview show for both men and women who want to hear the four T's. Testimonies, topics, talents, and theology, of course. We want to help you in maturing in your Christian walk and also deepening your relationship with Christ. And we love to laugh. So hopefully we get a few of those somewhere in there. If you're really excited about this show, you love what's going on. We would love to hear from you. If you want to help us out and volunteer in some way, feel free to check out our website, which is www.beautifullyrooted.com. And you will find information on our podcast with a forward slash podcast. You can contact us on there. And if you want to know more about the podcast, you can also streamline it straight from there, at least the past few recent episodes. To let you know more about my husband, of course, he's my husband. We've been married for 12 years now. We have six children together with a blended family. The ages range from five to 21. So a wide range of ages that we are parenting at this time. Manny studied missiology and was a missionary in Mexico where he planted a church. He's also Beautifully Rooted's chief biblical consultant. And of course, he's the co-host of this show, He also manages a mortgage and real estate business and does technical analysis for crypto trading. So you are a very busy man and we're so thankful to have you. I'm thankful to have you. My pleasure. It's my pleasure. I love talking about the scripture. Anytime we have the opportunity to talk about the scripture is a wonderful time. And we love talking about scripture with you and learning from you. So let's jump in to the big question here. There are so many bad things happening. I know you're thinking about it. I know this has come along. You're thinking recently with all the craziness going on. Everything seems backwards. Civilization seems backwards. It seems like disasters are happening all around us. So does that mean we are now in the end times? That's a really good question. And I think one of the first things that we have to do is define it, right? Define what the end times are. The word that's used, the technical word for it is eschatology which is a study of end times. It's composed of two Greek words, right? Which are eschatos, which means the last things or the end. Not a breakfast item. Not a breakfast item. And and don't request it at your um, Greek um, restaurant, bakery. Or I'll have eggs with a side eschatos. of eschatos. Thank you. <laughs> and um, logos, which is the word for word, for studying, or where we also get ology, right? The study of like in psychology. So it's the study of the end times. That's what eschatology is. And it it is a branch of theology. It's a very good thing to study. And it's beneficial to know it. But at the same time, and hence the the title of of this topic, right? Which is how sensational. It can definitely lead to a lot of sensationalism. And especially when discussing the second coming, the rapture, the millennium, and all these things that we're going to get into. So speaking of which... What are the main different biblical interpretations of the end times in the Bible and why do they believe that way? Great question. You have approximately four different views on the end times. Okay. 
Um, the first being what is called the preterist view. So the preterist view, it views things that happened in the in the past as fulfilled prophecy. And within the preterist view, you have what is called partial preterist and full preterist, which believes that all prophecy has been fulfilled. And partial preterist, they mainly believe that a lot of the prophecies were fulfilled around or at with 70 AD, with the destruction of the temple. And after that, we still are waiting for the physical second return of Christ. But other than that, a lot of the prophecies have been fulfilled. Um, you also have what is called the historicist view, which what it does is it takes the entire history of the church and it uses the book of Revelation pretty much as a guide to determine what has happened through the different stages of the church throughout history. So, for example, it'll say the chapter 4s to 22 have to do with the church from, say, the second century, first century, all the way to now. So it uses that kind of as an overlap, and then it uses it as a guide, as a timeline, pretty much to say, this is what it symbolizes throughout time, throughout church periods, I'm sorry. And then you have what is called the futurist view. Okay. So the futurist view are people who, for example, like premillennialist, uh, people who believe in the rapture, that in the pre-trib rapture, that is, who believe that all the prophecies, a lot of the prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled in the future. So they look towards the future. And then you have what is called the idealist view. So the idealist view pretty much says, oh, this is just symbolic. This is not really going to happen. There are really are no prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. This just symbolizes things that have happened throughout history, right? Or, for example, a certain church that's being rebuked symbolizes a certain period of the church. It's symbolic. And that's why it's called idealist, but it doesn't believe that we should be expecting these things to be fulfilled. So besides the four views, right, of eschatology, that is of prophecy in the Bible, you also have what, what is known as the different views on the millennium. So the millennium is a period where some people will interpret it based on this view, whether it's symbolic, whether it's literal. And those views are the first one being post-millennialism. So postmillennialism believes that the physical return of Christ will occur after a golden age of peace and prosperity on the earth through the spread of the gospel. So not after the year 2000. Not after the year 2000. And they can't really pinpoint the exact time because what they believe is that the gospel will be preached in all nations. The, the majority of the world will become Christian. And then at that time, the Lord Jesus returns. So they do have a very positive, optimistic view of the world. Now, in post-millennialism, also they do believe that Christ is reigning now. They believe that a lot of these promises, like Christ reigning, overcoming death, that a lot of that stuff actually already took place. And these promises are valid now for the believers. And that the last thing pending is the actual complete eradication of death. And that will happen when the Lord Jesus returns, along with receiving our glorified bodies at the second coming, obviously. And then we have something called amillennialism. Amillennialism believes ah. that, ah, millennialism, believes that there is no literal future thousand-year kingdom. So no literal millennium on, on the earth, but rather that it's a spiritual kingdom that refers to Christ's rule in the hearts of his people during the church age. So not the specific number. Correct. 
they don't really focus as much on the thousand year period. Rather, they take that thousand year period as it's used in other places in scripture to refer to a long period of time. Right. So, for example, the psalm, I forgot which psalm it is that says the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. That doesn't mean that on that one thousand and one hill, that cattle is not his. Right. Yours. They're all his. And then um, they do believe, though. And I heard this recently in, in a conversation with some theologians was that there is a, a view among amillennials that believes that, for example, the reign of the saints with Christ during that one thousand year period. It's a scripture we're going to read later today that. All who have now died in Christ, for example, say my mother, um, any family member that we have who died in the Lord, our friends and family, where are they now? They are with Christ. And in a sense, he, they, they interpret that as now they are reigning with Christ. Because if you think about it, when did Jesus start to reign? When was he granted all the nations? When was he granted the kingdoms of the earth? When was he granted all authority on heaven and earth? When he resurrected? When he resurrected from the dead, right? The scripture says that he reigns now. So in that sense, they're saying that those who are now in what we call, and I think we spoke about this once here too on the show, the intermediate state. That's the state between your death and the final resurrection, right? They believe that they are now reigning with Christ. It's in the spiritual realm, but they are technically reigning with Christ. And when you say reigning, how would they be reigning? For example, they're experiencing the glory of, of being with Christ now. And in that sense, they're partaking of the reign of Christ. Because remember, Christ is already reigning. Where is Christ seated now, for example? He is not seated in the throne of David in Jerusalem. He is seated at the, in the throne to, at the right hand of the Father, where he reigns now. He is king of kings now. Not that he will become king of kings, right? He is lord of lords now. Um, is it um, what Philippians 2, right? Which says, therefore, God has exalted him above all other names and given him a name that's above all other names, above all authority, all principalities in this age and in the age to come. So Christ is technically reigning now. So they are now partaking of the joy of that reign, of the benefit of that reign. So then we also have the third view, which is on the millennium, which is called premillennialism. Every time you say that, every time I hear that word, I just keep thinking of the Gen Xers or <laughs> the, the premillennials. Uh, so it's called premillennialism, right? Which was before you, you became a millennial. Exactly. <laughs> or those of us that are zillennials. <laughs> so in premillennialism believes that the millennial kingdom refers to a future physical kingdom that Christ himself will establish. At his return, the kingdom which will be centered in Jerusalem, listen to this, will last for 1,000 years after which the current earth along with the heavens will be destroyed and replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's a lot more to premillennialism. That was a view that I held for a very long time. And the majority of Christians hold, actually, premillennial view. Now, in this view, it kind of puts Christ's reign into the future versus now. Hmm. And Instead of being an optimistic view, like saying, hey, I believe that the gospel is going to spread. It will spread, but it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. In this premillennial view, this is what uh, most people who believe in the preacher of rapture hold this view, premillennial view. And one of the things that they also believe in the premillennial view is that in premillennialism, one of the things it teaches is that there will be a temple reinstituted in Jerusalem oh, wow. prior to the second coming, prior to the rapture. 
And that's why you see a lot of Christians that are moving towards getting a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. So these three positions, post-millennial, amillennial, and premillennial, they pretty much hinge on two very important questions regarding the millennium. One is the nature of the thousand years. Is it literal? Is it symbolic? And the second one is the timing of the thousand years. When does it occur? Whether symbolic or literal, does it occur before or after Christ comes? After the second coming, that is. Those are the two questions that we're going to deal with. And I think the, the reason these two questions are very important in the Christian walk is because it does have a very strong impact, even though it's non-essential for salvation. By the way, these are, this is a non-essential doctrine. This is not a doctrine that is essential for you to be considered a Christian. But I think it is important on how it impacts and it develops your worldview of Christianity, of the scripture. I'm really glad that you said that to clarify for those that might be questioning and really stressing out about this and is their fellow brother, sister, Christian, Correct. if they have a different belief. Yes. And, I will, and I will have you know also, and it's unfortunate, that even when you hear very popular, very big theologians, I mean, I could name a few popular Christian preachers and, and teachers. However, when they sit to debate this, to discuss this, it can get extremely heated. And I think especially with the camp that holds a lot to sensationalism, because sensationalism is rooted in deep emotions, deep passion. And because of that, if somebody disagrees with you, and this is what you really hold dear, it can get very hostile, you know? And that's one of the things that I think because I once held this view sensationalistically, I learned to fellowship with believers who didn't hold that view. And that's one of the ways that God got me out of that state that I was in as well. So you're saying it's hard to end a conversation about end times? No? Okay. <laughs> it's hard to begin, end to end. <laughs> so speaking of what I would call sensationalism, a lot of people I remember many years ago were very concerned with the rapture, especially because there was a very famous series of a book called Left Behind. Hmm. And that just felt like it became a rapid fire that just ran through Christianity where everyone was concerned and thinking about everybody's going to be raptured and at any minute someone could be raptured and there'd just be an empty space and the clothes would just fall to the floor and mm. and their car would, somebody would be driving in a car and then they'd be gone and then they crash and things like that. Is that biblical? That's a great question. And, and one of the things that I would like to do first and foremost is establish that the rapture itself is biblical. The term rapture, because all it means is to be taken, you know, to be taken. And in that sense, when the Lord Jesus returns, regardless of your position, you will be immediately transformed. Your body will become immediately regenerated in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is that, Kat? Do you know? Fast. Fast. Really fast, right? That's how fast we're going to be transformed and completely regenerated. Our bodies, not just our spirit, but our bodies, we will be glorified at that moment in the twinkling of an eye. And at that point, we meet the Lord in the air. The thing is, when most people use the word rapture, that's not all they're referring to. They're referring to a specific type of rapture. And that in premillennialism is primarily divided into three. There's actually a total of five or six, but it's primarily divided into three, which are pre-trib rapture. I hope you guys are taking notes. Oh my goodness. Pre-trib rapture and post-trib rapture. 
TRIB standing for tribulation, short for tribulation. So they believe that the rapture will either occur before the great tribulation. That's another popular term in, in premillennialism. The great tribulation, they also call it Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. Mid-trib believes that it's going to occur three and a half years into the, mid, into the tribulation of the seven, the seven years of tribulation. And post-trib means that it's going to happen after the tribulation when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, with regards to the, to the tribulation, there are those three main positions within premillennialism. However, I would say that the most prevalent one since the Left Behind series, and since they did a lot of movies in the 70s and the 80s regarding the rapture, has been the pre-trib rapture. And the majority of denominations now, whether they're Baptists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, hold to that particular view. Now, one of the things that I would like to do is this, because when I held that view, I held it vehemently, you know, and I preached it and I, and I taught it. As did I, I thought, not that I taught it and preached it, mm -hmm. but I believed that because of the church I was going to very much believed that and preached on it very often. And it does create, how can I say this? a certain sense of mystery and also expectation. Like, I don't know when it's going to happen. And ironically, even though we say we don't know when it's going to happen, everybody somehow has a date. Everybody somehow knows approximately when it's going to happen, you know? And we thought it was Y2K. <laughs> that's correct. So with this comes also something that is so linked to it that it's impossible to not mention, which is the, the, what they term as the Antichrist, the one world government. And much of it is centered around the timing of when the Antichrist is manifested. And that's why a lot of people sensationalistically pursue and play a game that I called in the tale of on the Antichrist. I There's always a new Antichrist. I don't recommend that game at your children's parties. <laughs> Throughout time, there have been many Antichrists that these church leaders supposedly thought, we finally know who the Antichrist is. So based on that, they would then try to time the rapture and say, so we know that the rapture is going to occur before the Antichrist is manifested. So now that we kind of know who he is, then we're kind of timing the rapture. And they play the sensationalistic game of that, which really tugs at your emotion and it tugs at your imagination. And your People even start having dreams about this. I used to have dreams of the second coming. When I first converted, I used to have dreams of the rapture. The biggest irony to me was that when I held this view and I had dreams of the rapture, this was the biggest irony to me that every time I dreamt the Lord is returning, I would immediately feel my body being transformed, glorified. But then the thing that I remember is that every eye saw him in my dream and Yes, he returned to be glorified in the saints, but simultaneously returned to judge the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about the pre-trib rapture, rapture is this, that there's a seven-year period. So the rapture actually is what we call the secret coming of Christ versus the second coming of Christ. So the rapture is thought to occur seven years before the actual second coming of Christ. Right. So they believe it's going to happen seven years before the second coming of Christ. Therefore, because he does come, but they claim, oh, it's not considered a second coming because it doesn't really touch earth. He calls us from heaven and we meet him in the air. And from there we leave and the church leaves for seven years. 
And during those seven years, there's hell on earth, literal hell on earth. And God resumes his um, dealings with the people of Israel, with his, his nation. The problem with that is that I'm not going to attribute authority to my dream. Because my dream could have come from God, but my dream could have also been the result of a big burrito I ate that time. That orange time, juice you know, before bed. Orange juice before bed. So we can't attribute things to our dreams and especially not doctrine. We have to be very, very careful. And as a side note, one of the things that made this pre-trib rapture extremely popular was a Bible called the Schofield Bible that many Christians use, many Baptists use, and to this day they still use, the Schofield Annotated Bible. And that was based on the teachings of a man named John Nelson Darby who was part of a group called the Plymouth Brethren. This was like in the 1800s. So after that time, there was a young girl, I think a Scottish girl, her name was Margaret MacDonald, who had a vision, a dream. Because prior to the 1800s, even premillennials were considered historic premillennials. They didn't believe in a pre-trib rapture. Pre-trib rapture is something fairly new in Christian history. Many people think that this is what the apostles believed, because that's the way we're taught. But in reality, it's something fairly new in the spectrum of historical doctrine of the Christian church. It's fairly new in the late 1800s. Prior to that, nobody believed it. So it's well known to us in all of our lifetime because we've been born after the 1800s. Absolutely. But before that, it was no, non-existent. Correct. It was non-existent. So this girl named Margaret MacDonald had a vision where she said the Lord came seven years before the actual second coming. And made it like a intersection, I guess, like a, a, a an interjection. I'm sorry, an interjection, which we call the secret coming versus the second coming, right? Because he doesn't manifest fully. He only calls the church from midair, pretty much. And we go to meet the Lord in midair. And we go to what they call the seven years of the feast, the wedding feast of the bride, which is the church with Christ. The lamb's wedding feast, the lamb and the bride. And they take this from certain portions of Revelation. But the whole seven years is never, you're never going to find it anywhere in the New Testament. That's something that's completely imposed on the New Testament. So where do they get the seven years from? Good question. That's taken from the book of Daniel, uh, prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, where he talks about the 70 weeks and about the, the prince that is to come, which is referring to Jesus, the Messiah. However, what they do is the last week of Daniel, the last week of those 70 weeks, they take it from, say, the ministry of Jesus Christ, right, which was during 27 to around 30 AD. And they take the last week from that era, from that time, and they project it into our future TBD to be determined, right? Well, each generation has tried to place it in their time and their time. And that's the thing about pre-trib rapture and a lot of the sensationalism behind it is that it's always in your generation. It's never in the generation to come. It's never in the generation before you, obviously, because it would have already taken place, but it's always in your generation. Or if it already occurred, you're, having, you're left behind. Yeah, you're left <laughs> correct, behind. Correct. You're having problems. So they take that last week of Daniel and they misplace it in the future. They project it. And based on that, they assume all right, well, then that means that when the Lord Jesus takes us, he has to take us for seven years. And during those seven years, he will resume his dealings with Israel, right? Where they believe not only that will the temple be rebuilt, but that the Antichrist will end up 
killing more Jews than the actual Holocaust itself. There would be great persecution to the point where they consider it the great tribulation, Jacob's trouble. And that after that, Jesus returns and there will be a great conversion of Israel. And the biggest irony that I find here is that there's a lot of Christian, and a lot of them are actually called Christian Zionists, not all of them, but a lot of them are Christian Zionists who want to help the people of Israel and Jews from all over the world go back to Israel. And they actually want to help them rebuild the temple. Why do they want to help them rebuild the temple? Because that's one of the most important factors in making sure that that prophecy is fulfilled. And I think that the building of that temple is an affront to the gospel because there is no other sacrifice that the Lord God will accept after the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. All the old temple sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus. Now that we have the real Passover, we have the real Lamb of God, we have the real high priest who not just, who didn't present his sacrifice in the earthly temple, but in the heavenly one. In the, temp- in the Holy of Holies in heaven. We don't need another temple. And I personally believe that there will never be another temple built. There can't be. Because since God himself orchestrated the destruction of the temple through the hands of the Romans, and we're going to talk about that in a bit, AD 70, after that, any construction of a temple would be an affront to the blood of Jesus. And as a believer, we should not seek to participate in that. Now, if we were to go back to the dreams thing, just in case, because mm-hmm. I think um, there's probably a few of you out of there wondering about the dreams thing. Do you think that all dreams are sensational? No. I do believe that God can still speak to us individually through dreams, but not to set a new doctrine, not to set a new guideline or rule for the church, for example. That authority has been closed. That authority was closed with the apostles in, in the writings in the New Testament in the epistles. That's it. After the gospel of Revel, after the after the book of Revelation, there are no more inspired books of the Bible. And I'm sorry, our dreams are not, in that sense, equal to the authority of God's word. However, God can speak to me individually, maybe in a dream, as long as I know that that dream is in line with scripture. I'm all for seeing, interpreting it and seeing if maybe I could relate to something in that dream with regards to my spiritual life. Maybe God is calling me. Maybe God is asking me to repent of something. Maybe God is showing me something that, you know, might happen to me individually and he wants me to get my life right with him. But to determine something for the entire church, I'd be extremely careful with trying to say that my dream is going to become the new authority in the church or based on my dream, they're going to do something in the church. That hasn't gone well before. That's how we get a lot of the other religions. Absolutely. And actually, there, there is something that I wanted to share with you guys that I find extremely interesting. And it has to do with this. It has to do with um, the second coming and it has to do with how sensational it can, it can be. And it's not just us. It's, this is not something that's exclusive just to our generation or even since the 1800s. Because even though they didn't believe in the rapture, pre-trib rapture necessarily, the way we know it now. However, check this out. From the, this, is, this is starting from the year 500 AD. Hippolytus of Rome, Sextus, Julius, and Irenaeus, all three predicted that Jesus would return in the year 500. Imagine that. Pope Sylvester II, he believed that the millennium and the apocalypse would take place at the end of the Christian millennium, 
in the year 1000. And various Christian clerics around that time predicted the end of the world on that date, the year 1000. They thought, oh, it's a millennium, right? It's the year 1000. So at the turn of the year 1000, Jesus should return. Is that one YK? Yeah, one 1K. Yeah. YK? That's correct. And then in the year 1500, a very famous Renaissance painter, painter, who, by the way, I'm a fan of Renaissance art, high Renaissance art and Baroque art. His name was Sandro Botticelli. He believed that he was living during the time of the tribulation and that the millennium would begin in three and a half years from the year 1500. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, he foresaw the millennium beginning this year. He wrote that Revelation 1214 referred to the years 1058 to 1836. And in late 1836 is when Christ should come. There's another gentleman named Charles Taz Russell who was the first president of the Watchtower Society, a.k.a. the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he calculated 1874 to be the year of Christ's second coming. And until his death, taught that Christ was invisibly here. That, that later changed to the, to the year 1914 when Christ didn't show up in 1874. Maybe you're thinking, he well, you didn't see him? It. He you didn't see him? He was correct. here. He was here. He got here before he got here. That's correct. Um, Sun Myung Moon. In 19, and he, the followers, all the followers of Reverend Sung Moon Moon consider Reverend Moon to be the Lord of the Second Advent, called by Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday at the age of 15 on a Korean mountainside. And they believe that Jesus, that he, well, they believe that he returned as Jesus in 1930s. Wow. Timothy Dwight IV, the president of Yale University, foresaw Christ's millennium starting by the year 2000. Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, the guy that discovered Gravity, right? Sir Isaac Newton, the law of gravity. He predicted that Christ's millennium would begin in the year 2000 in his book, Observations Upon the Prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse of St. John. Jank Van Impe, God rest his soul, he recently, I think, passed away, was a tenth evangelist who has over the years predicted many specific years and dates for the second coming of Jesus, but has continued to move his prediction later. Many of these dates have already passed, and he recently had pointed to 2012 as a possible date for the second coming. He no longer claims to know the exact date of the second coming. However, and God rest his soul, he is with the Lord now, right? So that mystery is probably revealed to him now. <laughs> Anyhow, the last one um, was in 2015. Um, September 28, 2015. You guys might remember this one. Mark Blitz began teaching that Christ's return would correspond with the September 28, 2015 lunar eclipse. His idea known as the blood moon prophecy attracted attention from well-known Pastor John Hagee. So this is just a list of people all the way back to the 500s who have predicted and thought Jesus Christ is going to return in my time. So we're not the only ones that that have been susceptible to the sensationalism. I just think it's grown so much more probably in the last decade, a couple decades or so, you know, after the Left Behind series. So out of the four views that you discussed, what do you think is the most biblical from your perspective? I'd like to maybe start with um, sharing my journey of how I, I went through being premillennial to now being probably in between post-millennial, amillennial, you know, holding that view and why I hold that view now. After I had all these dreams and I started reading in scripture, there were specific scriptures that they always shared with us regarding the second coming, regarding the rapture, specifically the rapture. And somehow, not only did it, did it not line up with my dream, 
where to be honest with you, my dream had minimal authority compared to the word of God. But I did find it curious that I'm like, wait a minute, Lord, why doesn't it line up with my dream? I didn't really know scripture back then. Then as I started to delve into scripture, as I started to read the Bible, I wanted to be faithful to God in my understanding of the Bible. And I prayed so much to the Lord to open the scriptures to me, which is one of our, our segments, right? Opening the scriptures. So I do want to share with you these two scriptures that I read. And because they're relevant, because these are the scriptures that are used to talk about the rapture. There's really, they try to impose it on other scriptures, but these are the clearest ones that talk about it. And I just want to be honest with you guys by laying this on the table, these cards on the table, and hoping that as we read the scripture without even me trying to interpret it for you, I want you to hear it. And I want the audience and you yourself, my love, to think about what it's saying. And tell me if you see anywhere in these two scriptures how a seven-year period fits in in a pre-trib rapture between the Lord's secret coming and then his second coming. Let's see what it's talking about, okay? Let's read these scriptures. The first one is um, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 52. And this is where Paul details the glorification of the resurrected body, right? The glory of the resurrected body. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Anywhere in that passage did you hear seven years? I heard twinkling of an eye. All right, that's fast, right? Now, listen to these two passages where Paul discusses this same subject with the Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That means those who are now dead in Christ, those who are with Jesus now in heaven, they will return and they will get their glorified bodies before you and I do. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Anywhere in there do you see seven years? No, and I think if it was seven years, it would be in there. That would be very important. No, and it's, you'd have to really impose on scripture to put seven years in there. And especially this, because he's saying the dead in Christ will rise first, right? As we stated already, those who are already in heaven with the Lord will receive their glorified bodies before we do. And then listen to how he uses the same phrase at the sound of the trumpet, the last mm -hmm. trumpet. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Now we who are alive, will be caught up together. That's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. Our bodies are going to be glorified. Yes. And listen to what it says here. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The question in here is this. There is no seven-year period there. Because now he says, from that event, when Jesus returns, and you and I received our glorified bodies, yes, we meet him midair. But from then on, we are forever with the Lord in that state. There is no seven-year period. There is not that we're going to go and then return to earth. Where I think a lot of people get stuck on this passage is because it says to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What they add to that is we will always be with the Lord in the air. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. Now, Paul here is utilizing 
something very common in the Roman world. So when a Roman general would go out and say, obtain victory over his enemies, he would bring back those enemies in a, what's it called? Either chained or parade the enemies, like to, to mock the enemies, to show that he overcame them. And one of the things that every Roman citizen had access to and was entitled to was to meet that general at the entrance of the city. So before he actually got to the city, you would go out to meet him and form part of that parade as he entered the city. This is some, somewhat of what Paul is using here, mm -hmm. saying when Jesus is returning in glory, you and I are going to meet him, be transformed in an instant, and we will descend with him as he's descending. We're going to meet him halfway as he's descending to the earth. And listen to how he says this here. For this we declare to you, until the Lord come, we will not proceed those. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is the second time that Jesus descends from heaven, technically. The first time was in his incarnation, right? His spirit descended from heaven. But here, he is literally descending from heaven. And there's nowhere in this scripture that it says that it's only halfway and then he goes back with us for seven years. I don't know where you fit that in this scripture. So when I was reading this scripture, I wrestled with it a lot. And I didn't like it because I wanted to hold to my view. And see, that's the thing about sensationalism. It makes you very adamant about holding on to that view. It's very difficult to let go of it to the point where maybe some people listening right now might feel hurt, might feel critiqued and not at all. Because here's the deal, even of what I'm telling you doesn't line up with scripture. Please don't, don't take my word for it. Take the Lord's word for it, right? Amen. That's why we read scripture. Now, listen to the second passage, which is also in Thessalonians. And I love this because the first passage was in the first letter he sent them. Now, Paul is writing to them a second letter. And I love how now he expands on this particular subject. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God consider, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, and now he's going to add more to this context, with his mighty angels. Now, how does the Lord descend? In one passage, Paul is showing us only our aspect of that revelation, meaning our side of the revelation. We meet the Lord. He's returning triumphantly and we're going to meet him midair. We're going to be transformed and glorified. But as we descend with him, along with all those who had preceded us in Christ, when we descend with him, what's going to happen? Listen to what it says here. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and, the, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes at that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now listen to what he says here occurs simultaneously. He returns from heaven with his mighty angels. That's him descending in first Thessalonians. This is adding more. This is expanding to that, giving more context to the second coming. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, 
So he's coming to judge the wicked, destroy the wicked, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Doesn't that sound like the final judgment? The it last does, days? As I'm saying. And listen to this part. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, and what does he do simultaneously as he comes to judge those who don't believe the gospel? He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. It sounds like the, the Jesus that is presented in Revelation. That is correct. Not the love, peace, and everything, but the judgment. Absolutely. And the scripture clearly teaches that when he returns, he will return with no relationship to sin anymore. He's not returning to forgive sin. He's returning to punish the wicked. This is in the Old Testament. When you hear of the Lord's day, it's described in several ways. Dark, gloomy day, a day of destruction, a day of wrath. We are delivered from that day of wrath who believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. So when he returns, we're not afraid. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be transformed. But at that same time, he returns to judge those who are on earth. That's it. And notice here, it does not say anything about a seven-year period. So it's really hard. So when I read this passage, guys, I really had to ask myself, why am I adhering to this so strongly if I can't prove it with scripture? And I would ask a whole bunch of the pastors, a whole bunch of the guys, and I read every book out there on the, the seven-year tribulation and on the pre-tribulation rapture. Did you read behind? Actually, I did. Um, I read almost every book out there. I read um, a whole bunch of theological books. I really wanted to convince myself, right? Because this is what I was taught. And this is what I even preached. And it was humbling to have to come back and say, I was wrong about this. But I will tell you this. There are several things that I learned as I was studying scripture. This is without me ever knowing anything about post-millennial or amillennial position. What I did know before I knew that was that the pre-millennial, especially the pre-tribulational rapture did not fit in scripture. It was not biblical. And also there's so much more um, surrounding the pre-trib rapture, right? A lot of sensationalism, a lot of division, right? Because they're like, well, if you don't believe that, you're, the Lord's going to leave you. As if the Lord was capricious to say, well, you didn't have the right doctrine about the rapture. So say, for example, that this did take place. And the Lord came. Do you think that the Lord would leave me because I had a different view of the rapture? He's not like us. He's not going to say, so you could honor him. You could do missionary work. You could teach the scripture. But if you don't have the right view on the rapture, will the Lord leave you? If he did say, come seven years before the second coming. No. No. And that's what I wanted to share with you guys. Because this is what happened to me as I was reading scripture. And these two are the most prevalent scriptures with regards to what they call the pre-trib rapture. So no, to be honest, I guess to answer the question now, right? Is I do not think it is biblical. That being said, that being said, please understand. I love you as my brother and sister in Christ, regardless of our, our, our different positions on this. I'm sharing with you guys, not just my experience, but what I think is biblical. And what I think I could confidently um, defend biblically. And do a podcast episode on? Yeah, and do a podcast episode on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. We have a couple more questions, but I think that this we're out of time. And I think that this was enough for today. And we thank you 
this, we are going to absorb this. I know you guys are going to absorb this. And I think the things we had questions on will be an episode on its own. So in regards to revelation, in regards to antichrist and all the things that surround that and other things we planned on addressing, I think this was sufficient and we, we thank you. Part two. So I think we should jump into our scripture section. Before we do that, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure everybody heard? Absolutely. I'd like to share an acronym with you guys called FUTURE. It's a, it's a really good acronym. I think it was developed by Hank Canagraf. So regarding the central themes to the end times, there's almost 100 passages that refer to the end times. However, many of these can be grouped into six end time themes. And an easy way to remember that is using a, a acronym for the word future. The F stands for final judgment. We believe, all, all believers believe that there will be a final judgment of humankind. And it's described in passages like Acts 17.31 and Hebrews 10.27. We also believe for the you that the hour is unknown. No one can know the exact time of the second coming. Despite sensationalistic ideas you may have heard from leaders or from well-meaning but mistaken Christians, Nobody knows the hour and the time of the second coming. So that's one of the first red flags, right? If you ever yes. hear anybody say, hey, this Definitely. is when the Lord will return. That's the first red flag. Um, and this is, you could read this in Matthew 24, 36 through 42. T stands for time and eternity. Though Christians have differing views on the timing of certain end times events, we agree on the future eternal state, meaning that following the final judgment, we will all be in eternity. Enjoying the presence of the Lord. Amen. And in fellowship with one another and no more disagreement on these subjects, right? This is true. On oh, the scripture for that is Matthew 25, 46, for time and eternity, where it says, these, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what we look forward to. You is for unbelief. Apostasy is a widespread defection from the true faith. And it will characterize the time immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. There will also be widespread mockery of the truth. And at the final judgment, unbelievers and mockers will have to answer for their actions. And we do believe that when the Lord Jesus returns, he will enact this final judgment on those who do not believe. And that's why it is our calling and our duty to share the gospel with everyone that we know. And this is in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Um, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And, and R stands for resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous will occur at the second coming. Jesus' resurrection. The first, he's the first fruits of the resurrection life. But that guarantees the resurrection, resurrection of all the believers, which is us. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, um, where it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who believe, belong to Christ. And the last letter is E. And it stands for essential. The second coming itself is a foundational fact. It's a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. All Christians and most Christian churches since the time of the apostles have affirmed the second coming as an essential or foundational belief. 
All early church creeds include the second coming, such as the Apostles' Creed. He will come to judge the living and the dead. While we unite in the belief that Jesus will literally and physically come again, if you think about it, many cults deny a literal and physical second coming of Christ. And we do have to mention one of the most popular ones out there, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, for example, teach that Christ's return was invisible and it occurred secretly in 1914. We don't believe in a secret return of Christ. We believe that the scripture says that when he returns, all eye, every, every eye will see him. And we do believe that. Right? Yes, absolutely. And we look forward to it. We, we look forward to the Lord's second coming. We surely do. Now, the name of the man who wrote this again? Hank Hanegraaff. In case they want to find out more about... Yeah, he has a very interesting book called The Apocalypse Code that I highly recommend. So just to finish what we're talking about here, let's make sure that we answered the very first question <laughs> right. that I asked you, which is, are we in the end times? Yes, we are. The end times started pretty much after the ascension of Christ. After the ascension of Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that's where the end times started, right? Yes. And we've been in the end times since then. And it will be the end times until the Lord finally returns in a physical form. Thank you for that. Now, for the scripture section, were those your scriptures? Yes, they were. Oh, yeah, that was a lot of scripture. So we're thankful for that. Thank you. You gave us a lot. And feel free to go back over this episode and write those scriptures down, look those up, study them for yourself. The Bible is available to you. Thank the Lord for that. The first scripture that I brought today is 1 Thessalonians 5.2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the second scriptures that I wanted to present was Matthew 24, 43 to 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So I brought those scriptures today because we're talking about the end times and lots of different ways to view it. But the important aspect, the important piece that we need to take from that is we need to be ready, that we want to make sure that we believe in Christ, that we have that salvation, or we are going to be judged. And there's no turning back after that judgment. That is correct. There are no second chances after the second coming. That's it. Just or like after, after death. Or after no death. No second chances. So like a thief in the night, it is going to come and... You want to make sure that you are ready and prepared and will be with the Lord Amen. and your loved ones Amen. in heaven that also Amen. believe. Amen. What would be your takeaway that you would have everybody to take away from this? If there was just one thing that you could choose, I guess that would be my takeaway. To know that the knowledge of scripture enhances your walk with Christ. And the more you know of scripture, the more you know about the Bible, the better you know Christ. Amen. And one of the things that we know about him is that he keeps his promises. He keeps his word. He doesn't lie. And he promised that one day he would return. And he promised that we would be with him forever. And that's what I really look forward to. And actually, there's a verse that I'd like to share with you before closing and maybe close with this passage in mind. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What greater motivation to partake of God's holiness and to seek God, humbling ourselves every day before him, longing for that day when the Lord Jesus returns, and longing to be transformed and glorified and be with him for all of eternity. Well, thank you, Mr. Manny Elias, my beloved spouse. Thank you so much. We love learning from you. I get to learn from you all the time. (laughs) So thank you also to the viewers who are watching. We really appreciate you. And thank you to the listeners who are listening. We're now in different countries and in many states in the United States, and we're just so thankful for you. Don't forget to check us out. We do have video on YouTube. We also have audio on YouTube as well. And we have our audio podcast episodes on all your major podcast platforms. And make sure that you're checking in with us and that you're following us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube, of course, that you're subscribed so that you don't miss anything. On our Facebook, on our Instagram, we post things that we're not able to post on our podcast platforms so that you can know what's going on. To finish now, will you please close us in prayer? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy word, Lord. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you because now we are part of your people. We are part of your family. And we know, Lord, that you keep your promises. Our hope is in a resurrected, glorified body, Lord. We look forward to that day when you return. And if we are alive, we do not know the time or the day. But if we are alive when that happens, Lord, we will glorify you. And if we die before that happens... Either way, we will come to meet you and to be with you. Thank you so much, Father, for your love and your mercy. I pray that your word find its place in every believer's heart and every every person who heard us today, that your word would work in their lives, Lord, that they would know that we hold these beliefs, Lord, but we fellowship with all, even when we disagree on secondary issues, Lord, on non-essentials. But we pray, Father, as you brought clarity to my mind, as My heart was troubled by your word, wanting to know the truth, wanting to know what scripture said. You gradually brought me there, Lord. Thank you for putting that desire in my heart. And because that desire was stronger than the sensationalism that I had learned. And I pray, Father, that rather than focusing so much on trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, that we would spend time figuring out who Christ is in scripture. Yes. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll see you next time. Ciao. God bless.